Today we'll be uh, returning to our study of the book of Ephesians, starting in chapter 3. And we returned there for the first time last week after taking a break for the Christmas season. And uh, so if you weren't with us last week, but you were with us a month ago, you kind of know where we're at, which is some good news. I'm excited about the book of Ephesians because what we're looking at is this big idea that there's some sort of mystery in what God has accomplished through Christ. And that is Paul's sentiment as he's writing. He tells us that there's this, this secret. And who doesn't love a secret? Who doesn't love a big, juicy secret packed in something that nobody else knows that they get to be a part of? I know that I do. I know uh, I enjoy the privilege that it is to, to, to know things that are somewhat concealed. And there's a richness buried in the New Testament of all of these great, divine, sacred secrets that God has revealed to us through Jesus. As we return to uh, the passage at the beginning of chapter 3 this morning, I invite you to consider this mystery that is disclosed for us and is available to us. As we ponder what it means and its implications, I think it gives us great insight into what we're doing here this morning. So I invite you to turn to Ephesians chapter 3 to prepare to read along with me as I read out loud. But first, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for giving us this time this morning to come together and to worship you. This time that we have to open up your word this time that we have to ponder the great mysteries that you have disclosed to us and the opportunity and privilege we have to humble ourselves and to worship you as we make ourselves living sacrifices before you. God, I pray that as we turn to your word, that you would open the eyes of our heart, remove any distraction or discouragement that may be found there, that we would be able to behold the amazing truths found in your law. In Jesus' heavenly name, we pray and ask these things. Amen. And the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 3, I'll start reading in verse 1. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was made known to the sons of men, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it, as it has been now, now been revealed to his holy apostles and the prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus. Through the gospel. Now, last week, if you were here with us, you'll remember that we spent our time looking specifically at verse 1 and verse 2, where Paul declares himself a prisoner and a steward. And we talked about what it means to, to be both of these things and how he identifies himself not as a prisoner uh, where he's a captive in Rome, of the Roman Empire, but as a prisoner of Christ. Because what he had been sacrificing and what he had been giving was. In fact, all because he found himself called to be a minister to the Gentiles. Now I have to back up just a little bit to remember what we're talking about. 
You can't be a Christian very long without developing some great sense of admiration for the Apostle Paul. After all, he wrote 13 of the New Testament books. He lived a tremendous life. He started out as a Pharisee, part of the group that persecuted Jesus. And so he was raised in orthodoxy, and he was raised with a great understanding of the law and everything else. And by the time that the Christians come around after Jesus is executed and resurrected, Paul joins the club to go and persecute these new Christians, relentlessly persecuting them. And he has a miraculous conversion experience on the Damascus Road where Jesus appears to him. He becomes blind temporarily. He he goes to a city and he's... um, A guy named Ananias comes to him, being sent by the Lord, and he says to him, Paul, brother. And he finds himself to be a Christian. And immediately after that, after Paul returns to Tarsus and he studies more and he becomes more familiar with these great mysteries, he's called to be a minister, not to the Jews, not to the orthodoxy that he came from, but instead to become a minister to the Gentiles. He goes all all over the Asia Minor area, going to Ephesus and Colossae and Thessalonica and all of these different places, ministering to these different groups of people, uniting them in this one mystery that they are one in Christ. And this is no small issue that he's up against. Because for generations on generations, there is a relentless... um, uh, the word prejudice between the Jews and the Gentiles. In fact, the Jews viewed Gentiles as dogs. And here's Paul going to church after church, new body after new body, and he's saying that Jew and Gentile are one and the same. In fact, this issue escalates so much to the point that the the apostles of the time come together in Jerusalem. We call it the Jerusalem Conference in in Acts chapter 15. And, And they start talking about, well, what should a Gentile have to do to be a part of the body of Christ? Isn't it necessary first that they go through the the sacraments of the law? Shouldn't they be circumcised like a Jew? And Paul defends this case that the love and the grace of God is so sufficient in itself that there is nothing else that is necessary but the blood of Christ. There's no ritual requirement that somebody would have to follow. There's nothing that they would have to do to become a member of this body. And he continues to minister to this group of people. All the while, there is some sort of buildup of angst in the Jewish community back in Jerusalem. And so Paul's going to these different churches and he's raising funds. And he's not raising these funds for himself. Actually, he takes these funds back to Jerusalem so that he can minister to the Jews who need help. The members of God's body who came from Jewish orphans, that they can minister to those saints in Jerusalem. He's, He's trying to... Build some quanchi, or, or uh, he's trying to, to build some credit with these people. And he tells them their testimony, and he's ultimately thrown in prison because he is unwilling to sacrifice the merits of God's grace. The only time he's really free is when he's moved from Jerusalem on a boat to Rome, only to be a prisoner there. And he writes, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner. 
Not of the Jews, not of the Roman Empire, but of Christ Jesus. Because I'm a steward. Because I've been given this insight into the mystery, this sacred secret of what God is doing. I have this secret, and it's my responsibility to be a steward of it. I will not sacrifice it. I will not yield from it. I'm in prison, and I don't care. Because I'm in prison for Christ, that you Gentiles might hear this truth. And he's writing to one of the churches that he spent a lot of time with, specifically the church in Ephesus. When you read this, verse 4, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ Jesus, which was not made known to the sons of men and other generations as it has been revealed to his holy apostles and the prophets by the Spirit. This great mystery has been disclosed. I want to take a second and talk about these sacred secrets that God has. See, one of the fundamental truths that we understand is that man never at any point in time went out on an expedition or some sort of journey that he might discover who God is. Instead, the God of the Bible, the God that we understand and that we study, is a God that reveals or discloses himself to man. Ever since the beginning of time, the picture is not man going to find God. Instead, it's God running to man and saying, I want you to know me. I created you and I want a relationship with you. And God reveals himself the way that God wants to. It's rather unique. He doesn't disclose everything to us all at once. If we look at this doctrine of revelation, there's this understanding first that God reveals himself in nature. That means whenever you wake up in the morning and you look outside, you can see God revealed because you see the intricacies of nature and you know that there is, in fact, a creator. It's undisputable. It didn't happen by accident. God reveals himself in nature in other ways, too. He created man, and inside of man there's this conscious mind that makes us aware of good and evil. Every person ever born is aware that, well, there's something right and there's something wrong. They might be misguided at times, but there's that conscious mind born into them. That's God revealed in nature through the way that you were created. And the problem is this natural revelation as it was, is not enough to actually save a person. Because if you understand that there's right and wrong, and you know that there's some wrong inside of you, then you also understand that it is just that you would be condemned, that you would be judged against your unrighteousness. So far, these are all easy facts to pick up on. God's revealed Himself. He's chased after us. And... That's not enough to save us alone in nature. And so we have a God who reveals himself, not just through natural revelation, but also through special revelation that he inspires people. And when we look at the Old Testament, we see God through all the way back to Adam revealing himself and then through the patriarchs, Abraham, and then through the prophets, Moses, and in building on and on. And, and, and then he reveals himself all over again through the incarnation of Christ. 
He inspires men as they write sacred words that do not come from a man's mind, but they come from the infinitely inspired hand of God. And so he's written a book, actually 66 books, inspired by God, written by men, that we would know him. See, God doesn't stop at giving us nature and creation and things to marvel at, but he wants us to understand him a little bit further than that. And so he gives us a way to understand him. This is that great mystery that Paul is writing about. The 13 books that Paul, that we have to credit him in the New Testament, this is what he's given us. And so we find that these sacred secrets, they're revealed throughout time in the way that God wants to reveal them. Sure, there are some secrets that are so secret, we will never know them. We have never known them. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says that the secret things belong to the Lord. And whether these things are things that are to be disclosed to us on the other side of eternity, or if these are simply things that are so beyond our comprehension that they are so sacred, they only belong to God. There are some secrets that are kept from us. We find, though, even just in a quick biblical study that there are secrets that are revealed to a special people in the past. This is what is meant when I say that there is a revelation to the prophets and specifically to God's people, the people of Israel in the Old Testament. And now these new mysteries about the Messiah, the church, the Spirit of God, all of these things revealed in the New Testament, these things are revealed through Christ. And this is what Paul is writing about to the Ephesians. Even Peter writes in 1 Peter that the prophets who wrote these things still knew that there was more. Meaning that the the, the people in the Old Testament or the prophets like Malachi and, and Hosea who were recording these Old Testament texts who had partial revelations of this mystery. 1 Peter 1.10 says, The prophets searched the things that they themselves wrote to try to uncover the secrets that were there. It was a partial disclosure. They didn't even have everything. And, and this is what's so amazing about this. When we look at this new church age that emerges after Jesus's, um, well, during Jesus's earthly ministry, when we look at this new church age and this um, conflict between the Jews and the Gentiles, we start to understand that they didn't know everything and it caused conflict in their mind. See, The Jews of the time had an understanding that some way the Gentiles would be saved. But they thought that this would come about through their conversion first to Judaism. That they would have to follow all of the practices and that they'd have to join the club in whatever particular way. The Jews understood that the Messiah was coming and that he would in some way reveal some truth about God. But they didn't understand that he would in fact be the incarnation of God, God in the flesh, that the Messiah would literally indwell inside of the believer. And they certainly didn't understand this concept of what the church was. Maybe it's better to say what the church is. Because it hasn't changed. So Paul's writing to them. 
And this isn't just because he's a prisoner in Rome. Look outside of the prison epistles. Paul writes in Galatians 3.28, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither Jew nor Gentile, Greek, barbarian, bond, free, female, male. We are all one in Christ. And, And we start to get the thrust of what this letter to the church in Ephesus is. What the real point of the letter in Ephesians is. Because it's building up to one singular point. Not just an application in the family or in the home or everything else. But the book of Ephesians is actually starting out talking about what the church is. That we are one. That there is unity inside of the church. And I said, while the church has not changed, the problem that existed in Ephesus has not changed either. The church is still comprised of human beings who have been saved, who struggle with a fleshly nature, a depraved nature. That causes us to have opinions that aren't that significant. That causes us to have feelings that are easily offended. Which causes us to form cliques and circles and groups. And that is not a true reflection of Christ's body. Instead of being unified, it can be disunified. You see, loved ones, it grieves God when we don't keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace that Paul is writing about. It grieves God when we are divisive and argumentative, when we form cliques and groups and segments that accept and reject certain people and reject others. Whenever we don't humbly regard ourselves in light of others, that we might consider what is best for other people instead of considering what is best for ourselves. And some of you are here this morning and you're saying, well, Brother Derek, I really don't know the point of this sermon or why you're preaching it or what the point is of bringing up divisiveness. I don't do that. Brother Derek... I stay out of conflict. And in fact, all of the silly things that we could talk about or have opinions on, I just surrender that to the crowd. I don't cause division, and I don't get involved in problems, and I certainly don't stir it up. You're saying you want unity in the church, that the church should be a reflection of Christ's body, that we should be unified the way that Paul's writing in Ephesians. Well, you don't have to worry about that from me. I'll stay out of the way. I'll sign the petition. I'll do whatever you want me to do. And loved ones, I say I'm talking to you. The way to promote unity is not through staying out of the way or avoiding conflict or suppressing your opinions. The way to promote unity is through faithfully using our gifts given to us by the Spirit of God that indwells within us to minister to the other members of the body. The way to promote unity is to get involved. 
Unity is not kept by staying silent about what you disagree with or staying out of trouble. It is keeping with and making a concerted effort to build the body of Christ. There are no passive members. There should be no passive members. The body of Christ is supposed to function and work. And when you're not engaged, the rest of the body carries you around like a limp. The oneness and the unity that Paul is writing about is that we would be equals. And so we should behave as such. This is ultimately a fundamental and pretty deep theological truth. That there is unity in the church and that it is essential that we, as a church, pursue such unity. You might be sitting back saying, why are we always talking about deep theological truths or uncovering these kinds of things as if they don't matter? Just tell me something that, that matters to me whenever I go to work the next day or, or whenever I um, go home and eat my Sunday supper. Which, by the way, it's weird that it's supper day. I don't know where it shifted. I called the meal in the middle of the day lunch and then the last meal dinner. I don't know which way is right or which way is wrong, but that's my side note. Why do we pursue this truth? Why is Paul pursuing this truth? And Really, when we look at it, you might say that I'm being repetitive because we've studied Ephesians chapter 1 and chapter 2 and verse 1 and verse 2 from chapter 3, and now we're looking at it all over again. Why are we repeating ourselves around unity so much? Well, because Paul does. In fact, he repeats himself so much, he actually interrupts himself mid-sentence. Watch this. Chapter 1, we see the origin of Christ's body, the origin of the church. And we see the power that it's formed through. For chapter 2, we see the entrance that the Gentiles have into the body. That we've been drawn near through the blood of Christ. That we have been made through grace a part of this body as equal heirs. And then chapter 3 actually begins... I didn't show you this last week, and I want to show you it now. Because Paul is getting ready to pray for the group of people that he's writing to. This is what he, he's writing a letter, and he says, I've given you these theological truths about what the church is and how it's formed and how you're a part of it. And I want to pray for you that you would be able to apply this to your life because the reason we come and we study the Bible isn't just so we could swell our heads up with intellectual knowledge, but it's that we had actually be transformed. That there would actually be change inside of us. And so Paul says, I want to pray for you that you would apply this to your lives and that you would know what to do. And so he says, for this reason, stop. Look at verse 14. For this reason. I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you may be rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend 
with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the width. I'm sorry, the length and the height and the depth. And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. This is his prayer. And it begins in verse 1. Notice that verse 1 and verse 14 start the same way for this reason. What we're actually finding, if you look at verse 1, that's not a complete sentence. And as educated as Paul was, I don't think this happened by accident. For this reason, parenthesis, all the way down to verse 13, in parenthesis. He starts to pray for these people, and he realizes in praying for them, I'm praying for application. You're not ready for application. I'm not sure you even understand what I'm talking about. For this reason, stop. I really need you to understand this great mystery of the church. That the Gentiles and the Jews are united together. That every member of the church is supposed to be functioning together. That whenever we cooperate with each other, we're accomplishing something. That there is work to be done in all of this. This is what's meant when Paul writes from Rome, or to Rome, Romans 12 Of course, Romans 12, chapter 1 starts that we make ourselves a living sacrifice. And then verse 2, that our mind would be renewed. It isn't just enough to understand that the church is a local assembly of saints who have decided to follow Jesus in obedience and submitted themselves to baptism. We have to be united in the way that we function together. You have to know it, and then you have to live it. Faith without works is dead, says Jesus' half-brother James. And so Paul stops himself to make sure, to reiterate one more time, to reaffirm, to remind the group that he's writing to where all of this points, that the church is united. And that's more than just staying out of the way. It's participating. Because verse 6 gets to the crux of this whole thing as he summarizes what this mystery is. Look at verse 6. This mystery is that the Gentiles, and there's three revelations here, are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. That the Gentiles are fellow heirs. That means this revelation that the Jews thought they had, all the promises of God that would come about from the Messiah, they knew that the Gentiles would be blessed with it, but they still thought Israel would hold some special place in heaven. And Paul's saying that's not the case. Jesus told us something different. In fact, every saint, every member of God's church, every member of the body, every person who is in Christ whether Jew or Gentile, barbarian, Scythian, the list goes on, when they get to heaven, they will be equals in the sight of God. No delineation, no separation. That they are members of the same body. By the way, Christ's body is not mutilated. There's no separation, there's no amputation. The body is whole. 
united. Partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus. Every promise all the way back to the days of the patriarchs belongs as much to the Gentiles who have been grafted into this body as it does to the Jews. And this is the great mystery that we have to celebrate today and every day. But in the spirit of Paul's letter, we should pause to remember Ultimately, the goal is that we would not only remember this marvelous and miraculous and immeasurable grace that God gives us, that by grace alone He saves us, that there's no ritual that we have to go to. Even today, let me pause and say we're going to celebrate a baptism this morning. That baptism, that ritual doesn't do anything to save a person. In fact, you can be baptized and by mistake actually make a false profession and you will not be saved. Because the only thing that saves a person is God's grace. And God's grace is so sufficient, there's no ritual that we need, there's nothing that we need to go through. We just need to follow Him in obedience. That we follow Him, that we become a living sacrifice because to understand this stuff means that it actually changes who we are. And so somebody argues, you can be a Christian and not be baptized. Sure, you can believe in Jesus and you can believe in what He did and you cannot be baptized and you can still be saved. That's true. I fundamentally agree with everything that that you just said. But here's what I disagree with. If you actually believed, if you actually surrendered, if you actually had faith, then everything in you would start to turn towards application. Which means that you would not only believe, but that you would follow Christ in baptism. Because he tells us to do it. You would be obedient to a Savior that you claim to know. Likewise, if you've been saved, you follow in obedience to be united in the body, which is the church. That's why baptism is a way to join the church. Because it's this picture And it's this beautiful picture over and over. There's level upon level of the picture that is inside of baptism. First, the baptismal candidate identifies with Jesus. That's the first step to being saved, right? Jesus first identified with you because God came in man's flesh to live on this earth, to experience everything that you experience, to know what it's like to live in a world plagued with sin so that he could die on a cross, suffer, die in your place because he's identifying for the death that you deserve. And then he could be resurrected, ultimately conquering death and becoming the perfect sacrifice that we all need. And so the baptismal candidate then identifies with Christ in his death that he would be buried and that he would die to sin, that the old self would be put to death and that the new self in the power of Jesus would be resurrected just like Jesus out of the grave. And it's a promise not just that he was resurrected now in his new self, but it's also a promise that he will one day be resurrected again in God's kingdom. Level one. Level two. It's identifying with every member of the church. And it's saying that not only am I this picture of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, that I have died to my sin and that I am being resurrected in new life, 
But just like all of you saints who have done the same thing, I am now a part of the body. I'm a part of you. And when we baptize these candidates, it doesn't matter how young or how old. If we baptize someone when they're four years old, that is a voting member, a participating member of the church whose opinion holds just as much weight as yours. And to really be united, to really be one the way that Paul points us to here in this passage, not only do we need to see that, but we need to celebrate it. This morning, we are going to have a baptismal service, and, and, and I'm excited to be a part of this and for all of us to be a part of that this morning. But I want to offer you this. The same obedience that we're about to celebrate in this picture is the same obedience that God wants from you. Whether you've already been baptized and, and you simply need to devote yourself to God's Word so that the information can actually transform you. Or you've never fallen in obedience because maybe you haven't understood it before and you have questions. The first step isn't necessarily running up here and joining the club. If you just have questions, I want you to know that our church is here for you and we're ready to answer those questions. And um, I don't consider myself an intimidating person. But I get excited when people ask questions. And I want you to be a part of that. I'd love for you to make me excited. So we'll take this moment to reflect on, on that application. I'll ask our worship leaders to come up. We'll sing a song of invitation. And we'll prepare to celebrate um, new life in Christ.